Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are. Thank you for joining this virtual event live. Thanks you for those who are watching this event by recording. My name is Ekaterina Krivanos. I'm the Deputy Director for Programs at CGR System Organization, and I'm also co-chair for CGR COVID-19 Hub. The CGR COVID-19 Hub provides a coordinated research response to the global pandemic, threatening livelihoods, food systems, and food security. It is housed in the CGI Agriculture, Nutrition, and Health Research Program, and it convenes researchers, funders, and stakeholders to provide evidence, innovations, knowledge, tools, data, policymakers, partners, and food system actors. Today, we would like to present you some work that was generated by work area four, address food systems fragility and build back better. We have a very exciting program because first we have a presentation of a study that was prepared in this uh, work area four on food systems fragility. And we will hear from Christoph Bene, principal scientist in sustainable food systems at the Alliance of Diversity International and CIET. And then we will have a panel with three speakers who will further discuss and examine the, the impacts that the COVID-19 has been having on food systems and the related risks and vulnerabilities, but also the factors that are driving resilience in food systems. So I would like to now pass the floor to Christoph, who will have 15 minutes to present his research, and then we will move on to the panel. Please do, uh, we would like to hear from you, so please do participate in our Q&A session that will follow, and you can submit your questions on ifwithup.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag AskPP. Over to you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Katya, uh, for giving me the opportunity to present uh, the result and the conclusion of this research, which, um, as you highlighted, um, has been commissioned and funded by the CGIR under the COVID-19 uh, working group number four. So. Um, I would start by good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, where, wherever you are actually on that uh, crazy planet. Um, this work has been uh, implemented by a team of researchers from uh, the uh, Alliance of Biodiversity International, SEAT, and the Wageningen University and Research. And the uh, objective of the study was to actually conduct a global assessment of the impact of the pandemic during the first 12 months of its spread on the food system and their actors. So that included obviously farmers and consumers, uh, but also all the other actors, those who we call the midstream actors. So the processing factories workers, the transporters, the retailers, the food sellers, uh, many of who uh, are working in the informal sector, like uh, this man on the picture, for instance. So looking at those actors, we were in particular uh, focusing on their food security, understood in a broad sense, as you're uh, going to see in a minute. And also then drawing on the key findings, uh, the ambition was to try to identify some potential lessons um, in relation to the resilience of food system, and possibly draw some preliminary recommendation in terms of building back those systems better. 
So in order to fulfill those uh, objectives, a framework was developed, uh, which built primarily on the two, on the major dimension of two uh, concepts, the concept of food security on one hand, and the concept of food environment on the other hand. So including, for instance, dimensions such as availability, accessibility, proximity, convenience, we, however, also included um, elements that are derived from the food system thinking, in particular, uh, looking at food waste and losses and diversity of food. We um, also wanted to capture dynamics around actors' well-being and agency. And this is why, uh, for instance, we included levels of self-efficacy and prevalence of domestic violence. And finally, Although the main analytical uh, analysis was at the micro level, uh, we also discussed briefly in the report two macroeconomic indicators, change in GDP and change in poverty incidence. The search for the documents was done in four languages, English, Spanish, French, and Portuguese, and covered the 12 months of 2020. So um, after scanning and assessing the uh, quality of the document available, essentially with respect to their reliability, we ended up with a pool of 337 documents, which discuss or describe the impact of COVID-19 on food system in 62 countries. With the exception of five of those countries, all the others are uh, low or middle income countries. So um, obviously in um, 15 minutes, I won't be able to, uh, I won't have the opportunity to present all the results. So I will just focus on the main ones. The first of those main results relates to the impact pathway analysis that was conducted. So the impact pathways is shown here. So the first result um, is that the impact pathway analysis confirm the importance and the relevance of adopting a system approach for that assessment. We were in particular able to identify more than 50 links or interaction within the whole system. Uh, but perhaps more important than the numbers, it's how mapping those connections illustrate the way COVID-19 and the different responses that have been put in place by the different actors, including, of course, the local and the national authorities, um, affect the other actors of the system and create not one impact pathway, but a multitude of intermingled uh, non-linear interaction. Another important uh, result relates to the um, existence of some causal link, which appears stronger than others. And interestingly, the two pathways with the strongest link are pathways that link, on one hand, mobility restriction on lockdown to disruption in access to food outlet, and then eventually to degradation in food choices and diversity. And the second, between the loss of job and the reduction in income or revenue to, again, the degradation in food choice and diversity. That means that physical accessibility, as well as economic affordability, were the two most frequently reported dimension of people food security affected by COVID-19. 
and both lead to degradation in choice, uh, food choice and diversity. Beyond the impact pathway analysis, the other major points that emerge from this assessment are first, the fact that uh, with the exception of some initial disruption due to panic buying, there hasn't been any major availability issue. So no supply shortage, no local or no global famine, and has some expert initially feared. Um, as we just said, the major disruption for consumers have been essentially around physical and economic accessibility of food. Second, the food system did not collapse, that's true, but its resilience has been at a great cost. In fact, we could probably revisit most of those results from a political economy perspective and see that some of those who lost the most are the small and often informal actors of the food system who were forced to shut down and did not receive any support or compensation. In opposition, those who benefited the most from the COVID-19 crisis have been the largest grocery store and supermarket chain who reported some huge profit in 2020, essentially because they were allowed to remain open and were able to capture, therefore, the customer of the smaller or informal shops. So there is little doubt that um, there has been a degradation in the food security of hundreds of millions of people in the course of the first 12 months of the pandemic. That degradation, however, has not or has not been the result of the failure of the food system itself. Instead, that degradation is the result of the slowing down of the world economy and the consequence that this slowing down has had on the purchasing power of those hundreds of millions of people. The food system itself kind of resisted. Now, there are several interpretations um, uh, to that apparent capacity to resist. We can see it as the empirical evidence uh, of the resilience of the system on its actors. It's true that it's been affected by a shock, yet it managed to maintain its functionality and to deliver food, which would, in some sense, be or could be interpreted as the evidence of the resilience of the system. Another interpretation, however, is uh, more straightforward, but less um, policy attractive, if I may use that term. It's one where basically this resilience is simply the result of the fact that the food sector has been recognized as one essential service and as such has been protected. The contrafactual of that, of course, are the other sectors such as austerity, tourism, aerial transport, which had not been protected and have collapsed. The report also concludes uh, that overall, the actual effect of the pandemic are still poorly quantified or documented. And one of the main reasons for that is the fact that um, we still have only a limited number of detailed and rigorous study. More are being published um, as we speak, and we can hope that in a couple of months, the actual imprint of the pandemic on the different aspects of our life will become clearer. In that sense, at the present time, 
but so expect, expect some severe impact on people nutritional status, those impacts are still, or at least were still unclear at the time this report was written. Those are expected to reflect both the consequence of the reduction in purchasing power, but also the reduction in, or the degradation in the choice and diversity of food, uh, as was mentioned earlier. Likewise, or maybe in parallel, the effect of the shift from food consumed away from home to food entirely consumed at home are still undocumented and will deserve some further research. And finally, we observe some account of domestic violence, but we're not able to elaborate on this issue. The uh, last part of the report proposed to revisit some of those results from a resilience perspective. The report start by highlighting the still relatively poor understanding we have about uh, food system resilience. Then um, relying on recent progress that have been made in the literature in particular on resilience in the context of humanitarian or food security crisis, uh, the report identified three areas where important information needs to be collected in order to improve our ability to strengthen the resilience of uh, the food system actors. First, a more systematic or comprehensive analysis of the sources of vulnerability that affect the different actors in different commodity chain or different value chain, looking not just at technical issues, such as, for instance, perishability, but also at social, cultural, or political economy processes. Second, a more in-depth analysis of the type of responses that those different actors put in place as an attempt to mitigate the impact of the initial shock. This referred to the concept of ripple effect and the idea that without understanding better the actor's behavior and those ripple effect, it would be difficult to anticipate the impact of the negative coping strategy that are put in place by those different actors. Third, we need to spend a bit of time identifying what actually constitutes what is called the resilience capacity of those different actors. In other terms, what resources, what assets are the most critical when those different actors are hit by a shock. Without understanding better those capacities, we will not be in a position to design relevant intervention that could strengthen the resilience of those different actors. The final point on this uh, aspect of resilience is just to remind ourselves that resilience should not be the ultimate objective of our intervention. Instead, what we should be aiming at are sustainable food system, and that um, in that context, resilience is just uh, one necessary condition to achieve that sustainability. So last uh, few words to conclude on building back better. So the report identified a couple of circumstances where it would have been possible to reduce the negative impact of the COVID-19. In particular, if we had applied some resilience analysis principles, such as those that uh, were presented in the previous slide. The report also acknowledged the increasing use of the term building back better, the freebie, but failed to identify documents with clear roadmaps on actually how to build back better. 
In other words, the term at the present time is more a rhetorical idea than a concrete plan. For researchers to contribute to that new agenda on building back better, they will have to invest in resilience analysis, but also in political economy uh, around food system. And for government, but also civil society, as well as researchers, we will need to identify better solution on how to handle or to navigate those cases where apparent irreconcilable tensions emerge because of crisis between sectoral priorities. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chris, for this overview of your main results. So it's quite clear that what the question of how to build back better really is becoming central now as the countries are moving, many countries are moving towards vaccinations and uh, hopefully slowly coming out of this crisis. It is definitely a, a very important to, to see what we've learned from that and especially for food systems in the future to prevent the, the future emergencies uh, have even more severe effect on food security and nutrition. What shall we pay attention to? How do we future proof? How do we make our systems more resilient? So this is really what we would like to discuss today. And now I'm really pleased to introduce our panel. We have three very distinguished participants uh, who each from their own perspective will continue this conversation that Chris just started. So first I would like to introduce Namokolo uh, Korvik, who is a senior research coordinator at the CGR research program on agriculture for nutrition and health. And um, she works for IFRI. Um, Namukolo's background is in agriculture, nutrition, and health. And she works uh, in low middle income countries with special focus on Africa. We also have Sophia Murphy, who is executive director in the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. And Sophia has focused on many years on resilient food systems, agriculture, and also international trade, working a lot of civil, with civil society organizations, but also with governments and research institutions just like our own. And finally, we have Thomas Reardon, who is a professor in the Department of Agricultural, Food and Research Economic, Economics at the Michigan State University. And his uh, research includes uh, agri-food markets, value chains, international development, agribusiness, and food industries. So we have, uh, from these three different angles, we would like to cover um, the, the several questions that Chris raised and maybe dig a little bit deeper. So I would like to start with the one question to all three panelists, starting with Tom, and then uh, asking each of the participants to answer that before moving to the second question. So Tom, from your perspective of, of, uh, as an expert in value chains and market, market structures and, um, and food systems and, and um, food industry, uh, now we have been with this pandemic for one year. So which part of food systems or markets have been most vulnerable to this shock? Where do you see the biggest risks to food security in the longer run of this crisis? Thank you very much. First, I want to say I really enjoyed Chris Benet's uh, talk and congratulate them on the work they did. Um, I will focus on food supply chains and just briefly mention first the extreme importance of food supply chains for food security in uh, developing regions. A lot of the debate during the COVID crisis 
uh, which continues, of course, but in the height of the COVID crisis, was on trade, international trade, and whether there was constriction of imports. But when you look at the domestic consumption of the food consumption in Africa, in South Asia, East Asia, etc., you will find that domestic supply is 90% of total food consumption. And imports only form 10%. That's in Africa. Actually, it's lower in Asia and Latin America. <clears throat> so a great deal of importance should be put on how did the domestic food supply chain function during this time. And also it's very important because a lot of during the COVID time, there was discussion of uh, people just moving back to subsistence. But in Africa, in South Asia, 80% of total food consumption comes from purchases. And that's coming from about 60% of the urban areas buying and in rural areas that are about 40% of total food consumption from 50 to 70% of total food consumption is purchased. So food supply chains, both rural to urban and uh, rural to rural and urban to rural are extremely important for the food security. And during COVID, uh, the biggest shock from my point of view, which really goes along with what Chris was saying, the biggest shock was the supply side shock that was caused by mobility restrictions. And the mobility restrictions were essentially affecting what I call the bones and the blood of the food system. The bones are the wholesale markets and the roads. Maybe 80 to 90% of all food consumed in these regions is going through the wholesale markets, a topic that before COVID was a, had become a minor topic, and yet most of the food is going through the wholesale markets. And the roads, the domestic roads, because uh, the domestic supply chain is so important. And the blood of the system uh, is the set of wholesalers and of logistics firms, especially truckers. So really it's wholesalers and truckers and how the policies during COVID affected wholesalers and truckers that ended up having repercussions upstream toward farmers being able to get inputs, being able to sell outputs and downstream toward retailers and consumers. The linchpin was logistics and wholesale markets which should be at the center of debate after COVID. And we found in our surveys, I can't go into it because of time, but in many places like in Nigeria with fish and chicken supply chains, the, the restrictions really hit those, um, those, those key sectors. And at the same time, uh, besides the supply shock hitting uh, the downstream, affecting the downstream by strangling some of the supply to retailers and food service like small restaurants, there was also a demand side shock uh, that had its main effect, as Chris was saying, and I agree, uh, on small and medium enterprises, SMEs, especially in the retail sector, the small shops, the wet markets, and the food service, super important, which are like the street vendors and small restaurants. And they were shocked because consumers really stayed at home and didn't go to those places. And 
the firms that were able to withstand the shock, and I'll talk later about their resilience strategies, were the large firms, the supermarket chains, the larger fast food chains that were able to what else called later pivot their sources and pivot their uh, their production style. And so you had major domestic food supply chain shock on the supply side, especially wholesale markets and truckers, and the demand side shock, especially on small shops and small restaurants. Uh, that was very important. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. We will come back to you. So now, Namukolo, please, from diets and nutrition perspectives, where do we see the biggest risk and the biggest fractures? Yeah, um, from a diet perspective, um, what COVID did was it made a situation that was bad worse. Um, we were already having problems in terms of dietary quality and the fact that uh, consumption of nutrient-dense foods that are required for better nutrition and health was low. Now, these are the foods that were also most affected by the restrictions that were in place because of the perishable nature of these foods. However, within because of the nature of the, uh, the way in which we need to collect dietary data, it, we actually don't know how things have changed in terms of dietary patterns. What we know is that uh, from a number of surveys that have been done is that people report having food security stress. And so we extrapolate that perhaps this might have affected uh, nutrition status. So in general, we really don't have information on uh, what the impact has been as far as uh, diets as well as nutrition uh, is concerned. There has been some modeling that has been done, for example, by Osendap and the, uh, the, 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 the Standing Together for Nutrition Consortium. And what they have estimated is that by 2022, an additional 9.3 million uh, wasted children will be added, as well as 2.6 million stunted. So projections seem to point towards that but we don't actually have the data at the moment to say for sure what the impact has been. What we know is the fact that people are complaining about their household food security having been impacted. I think one of the things that we need to think of, especially when we are thinking of how do we build back better, like uh, Chris Bennett said, one of the challenges that we have had with um, COVID-19 in terms of really knowing what is going on is the fact that the impact on the households really depended a lot on where they were at, perhaps even in the agriculture production cycle. Um, in, for some countries, the pandemic hit just before harvest. For others, it was before the growing season. Uh, and so depending on where you are at, the impact may have been different from a household perspective. However, both Thomas and Chris have certainly indicated that the value chains have been affected. Affecting those value chains implies affecting household incomes. 
and their ability then to provide uh, nutrient dense food. And I keep emphasizing nutrient dense food is because that's where the quality for nutrition actually comes in terms of nutrition outcome. And those are the foods that have been affected the most. Um, associated with that, for example, in, in Ethiopia, we know that the, 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 for the poultry industry, they actually dumped a lot of day old chicks because the restaurants were closed. But if those restaurants were closed, the implication is the people who normally get income from there didn't get their income, and that would have ripple effects on uh, nutrition status at the household level. So how do we build back better then with the challenges that we are facing? I think when we think in terms of diet quality and, 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 and future pandemics, we need to become more nuanced to the local realities to know what type of interventions would actually be needed. As I said, depending on where along the agricultural production cycle we were in, there may have been different impacts. Depending on the type of services that were closed, we would have different impacts. So as we plan for the future, we need to think in terms of different scenarios of pandemics to be able to plan better for how we intervene to impact uh, households and try and help them with the food security and nutrition impacts that are possible. Thank you, and over. Thank you very much, Namukolo. So we have heard about differential impacts on different types of households and differential impacts on different types of value chain actors. So over to you, Sophia, where do you see the biggest risks and uh, vulnerabilities from the perspective of equity and inclusion? Thank you, Katya, and, and thank you for this opportunity to speak. And as um, Tom said, thanks for the paper, Chris. And, to your colleagues who worked on it. It's a great paper. Um, I, I wanted to say three things, I think, with these few minutes. One is um, to say when I read the paper and in listening, I wanted to underline the role of government as an actor in the food system and to say how important I think um, the, the behavior of your government had a huge impact on how vulnerable you were. And, and I say that thinking about Malawi, where the courts ruled what the government decided to do was not legal because the government hadn't provided for food security for its citizens in thinking about its COVID response. Or um, Togo, I believe it was, that decided to make its cash benefits to make up some kind of income supplement to, to gender that and provide more money to women because they were considered to be and or often are. Um, doing more for household food security than, than the men in the household. So these, these kind of these um, decisions in policy had a big impact on how you were affected, even though you were facing a similar pandemic and in a, to an extraordinary degree, very similar responses from governments around the world. And to say, I think we're also seeing now how um, it doesn't, it didn't so much matter how you chose your government, whether you live in a democracy or not, but, but especially um, how actively the government engaged to stop the spread of misinformation, um, how seriously your government took the crisis. And I'm just across the border in Canada from the United States, but very conscious of the very poor uh, record the US has had, um, whether you let health experts lead and, and what level of trust there was. And I think for resilience and understanding vulnerability, this question of trust in the institutions 
is, is huge. So I wanted to put in a pitch there. Um, second, and I think this is you know, clear from what Chris said as well, the, the big issue for food security was access. Um, and I think in terms of the vulnerability, a sense which I believe the paper also found that it wasn't so much the scale that mattered. It, it did depend a bit for the producer point of view, it depended where you were selling. Were you selling um, to food service? Were you selling to tourists? You know, huge amount of food um, value chain is involved in tourism and that sector shut down effectively with COVID. Um, another, another access, so that's access to markets and sales. And, and I was a bit surprised, but I think there was a lot of waste in the system there and somewhere to look, at least in North America, the Canadian government created a whole program to channel food that was not being sold to the service sector into food banks and into our rather, I would say, ad hoc, not very adequate system of food distribution for households that are not meeting their food requirement. So there was a, there was a big, um, I wouldn't, there, there was clearly a vulnerability or a failure in the system there that depended a bit on where you were selling, perhaps more than the scale of operation that you had. Um, and another point of access that I think probably is worth looking at, although I don't know what the results would be, would be the number of children depending on school food and how the closure of schools cut off an important channel. I know in North America, in a very decentralized way, there were lots of pivots to try and ensure that food was still provided at a central place even though the children weren't coming into to class, um, you know, for a normal school day. And this, the third, maybe last area, which is, I think, in terms of vulnerable groups, was with food workers, food workers in the fields, workers in greenhouses, workers in processing plants. And I think it wasn't so much that COVID um, hit them more than others, as Tom said, you know, the, the effect of the COVID measures had very specific effects on movement. But also, but more that these workers are very vulnerable always. But the fact that we all who were able stayed home showed us who was still going to work and in what conditions they were working. And, and this is drawing on North American experience, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was true across a great part of the world as well. That food workers are primarily migrants, often immigrant workers. They do not necessarily have any political voice at all. They're usually very poorly paid. They're poorly housed. They are often in minority communities, so they may lack other kinds of cultural or social status that would protect them. There's no healthcare, no medical leave. There was no provision of protective equipment in a context where most other essential workers were being looked for, looked after. Um, and a lack of safety nets, which brings us back to the government. The, the, the role that safety nets played, I think, had a huge uh, um, effect in determining your vulnerability. Thanks, Katia. Thank you, Sophia, and thanks to all the panelists for staying on time. I would like to ask you one more question, and if you could just give me a, a short highlight, one or two points in your response, because I can see already very interesting questions pouring in, so we would like to have uh, time for those. So starting with Tom, could you just please flag one or two critical factors of resilience? So as we move forward with this crisis, what are we learning? How can we strengthen these different actors, these different population groups? Yes, thank you. Partly picking up from what Sophia said, I think that the policy response to COVID was rooted in the images that governments and donors had about the nature of supply systems in their country, food supply systems. 
And we just did a paper on Nigeria going into detail on this. But the basic point is that very often governments and donors had it wrong. As I said, there was a feeling that imports were super important when imports are very minor. So the big you know, focus was on keeping ports open. But other things like third party logistics, the logistics systems in the trucks, which are the blood stream, uh, for example, 75% of maize in Nigeria moves on the third party logistics. Only 4% of the traders have trucks, 4% own trucks. The rest is all through this huge trucking and warehousing markets that are there. These were invisible to the debate. So when policies came, people said, okay, shut down this, stop this, restrict that to the logistics center uh, system. And that strangled the supply chain. So building back better, as uh, Namukulo was saying, and also Chris, is going to have to fun uh, focus on getting policies right to help those logistics sectors and also uh, to invest in the ailing wholesale markets in a lot of these regions and the dilapidated uh, trucks, I mean the roads. The second point is that, as Chris was saying, we found a lot of resilience in the system. And the key concept here is the ability to pivot, to move with the shock, and to have partners in the supply chain that co-pivot with you. And as Sophia said, even governments that co-pivot with you, helping you to pivot. We found, for example, that companies were pivoting in their sourcing. Now, as Chris is saying, it's especially the bigger companies that could change their sourcing, diversify, get around the local blockages. The little guys were unable to do that, so they were stuck with whatever shock occurred to their local wholesale market. So pivoting and sourcing. Then there was pivoting in technology, where with these labor supply flow, flows that were restricted, as Sophia is saying, uh, basically bigger companies were able to substitute to machines, which I think will stay after COVID, more robots, more automation, in the developing regions as well as in developed countries. And they were able to shift away to different ingredients. Smaller firms, far less able to do that. So they were more vulnerable to those uh, factor shocks and technology rigidities. The last thing that got very excited about was that there was a big pivot to e-commerce. E-commerce rocketed up, especially in Asia and Latin America, Africa, behind but still changing. And it was the pivoting by big companies like Alibaba. Alibaba's e-commerce was born with SARS, 2003. The shutdown in China gave birth to their e-commerce to, to consumers that were staying at home. And uh, you saw giant increases in that e-commerce, not just by those big firms like Alibaba, and Amazon, et cetera. But also you saw supermarket chains that shifted to e-commerce and delivery. So delivery was a key thing because you were getting it directly to consumers. But fascinating is we found that it wasn't just the big guys that shifted. It was also the small and medium enterprises, the SMEs that shifted to e-commerce and shifted even to delivery. And there was the story of the co-pivoting 
very important and really the heroes in a lot of places of the COVID crisis were the delivery intermediaries like Instacart. In India, it was Swiggy, which had serviced tens of thousands of small restaurants. And so they were able to shift and, and deliver the food from the small restaurants to consumers during the COVID and stay around afterwards. So the importance of delivery intermediaries helping, facilitating, co-pivoting with these food industry firms as they shifted was extremely important to the resilience of the system, especially for, for its food service, especially for retail where it could occur. And all of that was very dependent. You can't do e-commerce. There's people are dreaming after COVID that e-commerce will save everything, e-procurement. You, you can't do e-commerce without good logistics. Without the bones and blood, you can't do e-commerce. So where were the, where, which regions were able to do the pivoting? Asia, Latin America, because they had the bones and the blood that allowed the logistics to, to occur for these e-commerce solutions. Africa, still struggling, has to focus on those bones and blood. And eventually the e-commerce solution will be down the road, but 10 or 20 years, not now, not until the wholesale markets and the roads are fixed. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And I'm going to the same question to you. Where do you see critical factors of resilience as we go forward? Um, I think we are missing, we may be missing, not we are, we may be missing some critical factors of resilience in the way in which individual households may have responded to the pandemic. For example, if you look at some of the surveys that were done uh, by IFPRI in Ethiopia, households were reporting uh, being under um, stress for food security uh, in the household. But when you asked them about whether their dietary patterns had changed, many were reporting that had not changed. So the question then is, there must have been something that households are doing that we may be missing. And so what I would say is, as we work towards building back better, it is really important for us to get a better understanding of how vulnerable households were responding to the challenges that they were facing. Because in there may be answers on how we might be able to structure our social uh, transfer uh, programs for the, for the future. Um, and then I just wanna quickly, uh, to touch on something that uh, Thomas said. I think we mustn't, uh, I'm quite, I know Africa has struggled with uh, coming on with e-marketing and whatever you, but I think there is also a need to have a better look at what was actually going on. Um, because there's a lot of selling that was going on via WhatsApp and SMSs and whatever you. And, and it's important to have a look at that because maybe within the context of that lack of uh, e-commerce platforms, people may actually have adopted and found ways in which they were dealing with things. So please have a look, don't discount it because perhaps that's where the nuance for our continent might come from within the limitations that we have. Thank you. Thank you, Namakola. And Sophia, over to you with the same question. Thank you. Um, um, just a few things. 
one is um, uh, maybe to, to say in terms of what's critical, and this is drawing not so much on the COVID um, experiences on the, the work that I've been doing in an ever-ending PhD looking at trade and food security, but that I, I think there are three components of resilience that are very important. One, one is this idea I call consonance about how the different policy interventions at different levels interact with each other. And the, the, there was a, there's a lot of inconsonant, um, dissonant government policy. Um, and you could see that come out with COVID. You see it in lots of areas, whether what you're doing in your local government, what you're doing nationally, how you respond and behave multilaterally, these things need to be consonant and they're often not. Um, a second big area is this question of democratic uh, accountability. And that's partly a vote and a voice, but there's especially a chance to feed into the third element of adaptive governance and this idea of reflexive learning. And, and this is things, these are things that Chris and, um, gets at in the paper. The, you need to have feedback from many places in order to understand what's happened. And I think Namkolo's point about understanding how vulnerable households have responded, or Tom's point about not knowing what the middle looks like, those are reflected in this need for adaptive governance. So one of the policy responses is to be doing a better job of listening and improving all the early warning systems that we have. And to say that I think one of the lessons from COVID, thinking back 10 years to the food price crisis, is that governments, and not just governments, but also governments, learned a lot of lessons. We have a lot of social protection systems in place that didn't exist before. We learned a lot very soon after COVID measures were put in that we didn't know. We still have many questions. We still don't know enough about um, women. We don't know enough about vulnerability, but we know a lot more than we did last time. And that's because we put in place social protection programs and we've begun to count and measure different things um, and improve our sort of science. So for that's critical, this feedback loop in order for the system to respond and adapt as it needs to. Just a few more points, one for smallholders in particular, and this is actually drawing on work that I was part of, it's a project called Ceres 2030 that IFPRI was um, also um, uh, active in, and a paper on, on smallholders that looked at, at what, what sort of, uh, the role of farmers organizations is what it was looking at. Um, and then a paper that was done by a colleague of Tom's that was looking at the intermediaries in food systems. Um, and the kinds of things that came out were the importance of a peer group, um, the importance of political voice for smallholders in order to be able to shape their market conditions, the importance of a kind of minimum income, that there are poverty issues that overshadow any other food system intervention you might bring if people are simply too poor to engage in the markets, um, the opportunities that might be there. And then this role of intermediaries. So kind of coming back to what Tom was saying, but from the other side, this really crucial role of the informal sector of intermediaries that are providing farmers often with storage, with technology, with market intelligence, with transportation. And so, so understanding how that works for the smallholders and is a, a really important part of how this works. And I think it probably worked in some places and not in others. And so one of the things about COVID is it gives us a nice, uh, I forget what the technical terms are, but we'll be able to see some differences um, because of this external shock that, that will be important. My last 20 seconds on concentration. I, I'm, I'm sure economic power further concentrated, especially around retail sector. That makes quite sense. Some of that was opportunistic because in economies like North America's half the food dollars are spent on food service. So you cut out food service, that food has to be procured elsewhere. 
and the supermarkets made out very well. You also saw the effects of concentration in other sectors. So the vulnerability of, for example, workers in meatpacking plants was to do with the concentration, the lack of accountability that results when you have an oligopoly situation and no, and no proper worker protection in place. We saw very ugly results of that. So in terms of what we need to do now, I would say it's defining the just transition. It's also, you know, filling in what Build Back Better looks like. But in that, thinking about how we protect public goods and diverse markets. And I really appreciated that the, that the paper Chris shared focused on the outcome being sustainability and not resilience per se. Thank you, Sophia. This is an excellent place to stop our panel for a second and just take a look at the questions that we are receiving. And let me just remind you all that uh, you are tuning in live and you can submit your brief questions on either ifri.org, on our Facebook event page, through LinkedIn, through YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfri on Twitter. So we are now starting our question and answer session. Uh, where panelists uh, and, and Chris are very welcome to build on uh, the points they already made and build on each other's reflections as well. So perhaps I could start with Chris and ask, in your report, have you looked or are you aware of any additional findings specifically on the effect of COVID-19 on domestic violence? Um, okay, thanks. Thanks for the, the question. I think it's an important one. Um, so remember the way the, the analysis was set up, we really came, we entered by the food security uh, questions. So we wanted to also look at issues of well-being, and indeed we uh, tried to have in our keywords those issues of domestic violence, but um, we did not dive into that specific question. And I know from our, you know, from different other sources that that has been reported and documented. So uh, I would say, you know, very frankly said that this report will not be the good basis to explore and document and quantify that particular issues. Uh, but I believe it has happened. Um, this is already an issue in itself. And I think COVID has just basically uh, exacerbated further some of those issues of intra-household relationship with the stress, with the decline in income. You can imagine very well that in some uh, houses that was uh, just the, uh, the, the last straw uh, uh, you know, on, on the camel to, to make uh, a very uh, already tense situation even worse. So again, the report in itself does not dive into it, but I'm sure there's of a, a very well done analysis that have documented these particular issues, yes. Thank you very much, Chris. I would actually now like to ask Tom a question because you mentioned in, in your intervention a lot about how SMEs reacted to this crisis, but what about marginal and small farmers? Were they also badly affected? You asking me or you asking Tom? It's a question to Tom Reardon, please. Thank you very much. <clears throat> very important, I think, is to think about, again, to me, the factual image that one goes into a debate question with is central. And very often, people think that small farmers in these regions uh, are not using fertilizer. 
and a lot of data has shown that, in fact, a lot of them in Africa and also in Asia, but in Africa are dependent on fertilizer. You think 4 million tons of fertilizer a year in Africa. Very little of that is distributed directly by the state. It's coming through supply chains. So there were shocks as well to the supply chains of fertilizer that go out to rural areas, many of them through urban areas and then to farmers. So that was, you know, the input shock is important. A second point, very important, is that uh, to, to, to see farm households as really rural households that are diversified. We just did a very detailed analysis of 500,000 individuals across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. <clears throat> and we found that in terms of full-time equivalents of work, 40% of uh, their work was on the farm in rural areas, okay? And 25% was in the food system, the rest was in other off-farm activities. So the shocks that are occurring to these supply chains are affecting rural households through their effects on the food supply chains, not just directly on the farm. It's, remember, 40% of the time in Africa and only 30% in Asia. So these off-farm activities are extremely important and most of them are by women. And the third point <clears throat> is that it was not just products that were flowing around as Sophia is saying, is laborers flowing around. Now, farm wage labor is only 4% of all rural labor in Africa. So it's a very minor thing in Africa. It's mainly important for medium-sized firms, okay, farms. But in South Asia, there were major impacts because the share, <clears throat> for example, of income coming from, or labor time in farm wage labor is 15%, much more than in Africa. And many more small farms depend on hiring labor in. Okay, and so there was a lot of blockage of labor that was trying to go between villages. 50% uh, of the non-farm labor in, in rural areas in India is in commuting. That was blocked. Labor coming from villages out to farm areas was blocked. So the farmers were suffering from a labor shortage uh, during this. So labor, fertilizer, and their own off-farm activities that are the majority of their time were all affected by COVID. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. And now over to Sophia for this question, which I find quite interesting. Could the relative resilience of food security during COVID partly be explained by the fact that agriculture is actually the most exposed sector to shocks in normal times? So the relative, uh, I mean, could you say that agriculture and food security are generally quite risky and so we're in a way better prepared for this COVID shock uh, to Sophia? I have to think about that a minute. That is an interesting proposition. I think my first my first response when I saw that finding in the paper was to think that um, it, it's not it's not for nothing that go, food is an essential service. So part of the resilience of food security is that no government is willing to to jeopardize the food security of the country because it's kind of one of the basic tenets of of the what Western philosophers would call the social contract. You know, you, you can govern and return for providing certain things and food is, is right at the top of the list. So, so I think it's resilient partly because it's an agreed upon objective. You know, come hell or high water, 
Whatever our divisions within our societies, we agree that food matters and the provision of food to one another matters. Um, and so you have more attention paid, you have this willingness to, to, to pivot and focus on how do we protect this particular aspect of our economic life. Um, I do think though it's true that agriculture is subject to many shocks and that means that there are things in the system. I, I, I also believe we learn things. I, I don't know if others would agree, but that I saw that having um, paid a lot of attention to the food price crisis and then paying attention to COVID, my impression was that lessons have been learned and they were useful lessons. And we saw, um, it's obviously a different shock, but, but we saw the benefit of having geared up things like uh, forecasting systems, early warning systems. Um, but I also think that a lot of economic policy, this has been a big part of the work I've done with civil society organizations is that we've undermined shock absorbers and redundancy builders in food systems with a particular economic agenda that I, I think was looking for making things the same at every level instead of looking for something that I would call consonance, which would mean that locally you might have different kinds of markets and different adaptive strategies than you attempt to put into place at the multilateral level. Um, so, so we learned some lessons. We've probably got a lot more lessons still to learn um, in terms of back to some things we had. 10 years ago, it was building grain reserves, for example, which became, again, of importance to governments in increasing their resilience. Thank you. Chris, would you like to add anything to this reflection? Yes, on, on the particular issues of, of resilience, I think um, as I tried to, to share with you in the presentation, there's a danger to kind of um, romanticize the, the resilience of food system. Uh, I think the point we, we try to make also in the report is that, um, and again, we use the counterfactual of, of those other sectors, partially the fact that the food system did not collapse was also because it was protected. And had, not, had it not be protected, we would have had a disaster. So, I don't want us to instrumentalize too much and basically conclude, oh, well, our food system is so resilient. It has been resilient partially because it was not affected as much as the rest of the economy. So I think it's very, very important to make that distinction and not uh, sort of conclude too activity that uh, anything happen, don't worry, the farmer uh, resilience, the Restaurant are resilient and they're going to be able to, to you know, swallow it up. It's not been protected very, I think, logically by the government. And Sophia was highlighting how important understanding the response of the government is. And I think one of the major decisions of the government in every single country has been the same, which is to protect the food system. So I think there's a balance to have when we assess the resilience of food system. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I now have a question to Namokolo uh, from Paul. Do we know what happened with processed food consumption and trade after COVID-19 began? So I don't know if that's in your, in your research or research you're familiar with, uh, discusses differential effects on different types of products, so processed versus fresh, perhaps? Um, 
I haven't seen any work that has been done specifically on processed foods. Um, however, anecdotally, at the beginning of the um, at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of the buying that was going on was focusing on canned foods and and and, and that kind. So. I think the supermarket chains would probably have that type of, of, of information. But let me use this as an opportunity to pick on, 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 on something else in that we were seeing, for example, like I said at the beginning, depending on where farmers were hit in the pandemics, uh, the reaction was different. So there would be farmers who would have dumped their crops because the restaurants and, and hotels were closed. But there were other farmers that decided to donate that food to uh, directly to households or to, to, to food banks uh, to help uh, others. And I think that says something about how potentially going forward, we could nuance uh, social protection programs during a similar type of pandemic situation where those farmers that are actually prepared to pass that food on and not plow it back in the ground, the social protection measures should include them in terms of them being compensated for what they have done from the social protection uh, program. That way, the farmer doesn't disappear because he was willing to help others, uh, but, but you would encourage that kind of, of, of activity. So I think it's something to look into in ways in which we could, I think we should have different permutations of social protection program under different scenarios. And the pandemic, if, if nothing else, the pandemic should teach us to think about what different permutations of social protection we can put in place under different scenarios. Thank you. Thank you, Namukolo. Very important. The number of panelists raised some very critical areas of, um, of government policies, including social protection, but also school feeding, um, things like access to, to health. Um, and this is a conversation definitely that we'll continue having. And I'd like now to go back to Tom uh, and ask him a question from Rokon. Do you have any thoughts about what kind of innovations should be promoted and should be what kind of research should be done to enable locally led food businesses um, to help farmers generate more revenue? Thank you. Tom? Yes. <clears throat> <clears throat> Whether <clears throat> I really <clears throat> have spent a lot of decades focusing on innovations. And yet, when my back is to the wall and I want to talk about what's most important, I emphasize the fundamentals. I think that the bones and the blood of the food system are the most important things to help the small businesses to be able to function. This is what they say, okay? They talk about roads, access to trucks, access to wholesale markets. Wholesale markets and logistics are the center of building back better. The secondary circle, the concentric circle way beyond that, that are the new leapfrogs and digital this and innovation that are five to 10 times less important than those bones and blood in, in helping 
the firms both be resilient and also to um, to jump ahead. In some countries, it's not this case in China, et cetera. But the key thing is to be able to get those basics right of wholesale markets and the, tr the roads and the logistics. On the other side, going back to Namukolo, Namukolo's point, thinking about the food system, what was most battered by the shock? Not grains. You can store grains. Grains were available, okay, in, in their main. Grains are 30% of food consumption in Africa and in South Asia, 30%, okay? Tubers are, more, are important in Africa. When you start looking at the shares, the non-grain foods, which many of them are perishables, the poultry, the fish, uh, the milk, the fruit and vegetables, these are the lion's share of food in, in those regions. And those are the ones that are shocked and those are the ones that depend on the wholesale markets and the logistics being got right to be able to rise and the businesses that are linked to those. I think, again, the mentality is informed by the assumptions. What, what do you think? So if our work in Tanzania, for example, people say, well, people are growing their own fruits and vegetables in rural areas. And therefore, supply chains and wholesale markets and cold chain is not very important to rural people. Wrong. 85% of fruits and vegetables consumed by rural people in Tanzania are purchased from supply chains. 85%. Suddenly, it changes the whole debate. You say, wow, to help these businesses, you need to be able to help those basics and get them right to be able to have things move along. And the fluidity and the flexibility of the system where you can have delivery intermediaries, you can have namakulos of Facebook, uh, you know, you need logistics to be able to deliver things ordered on Facebook. All of those things can rise if you get the bones and the blood right. So go to the fundamentals, go back. Don't get your eyes glittery to leapfrog away. The, leap, the, the frogs that are leaping away are drowning, okay? Focus on the fundamentals in the building back to be able to facilitate these local food businesses. Thank you. An excellent point, thank you so much. The next question goes to Chris. Uh, Chris, what role, if any, might migration play in response to the pandemic and from the point of view of resilience and food systems? Uh, thanks. Um, I, would be, I, would, I would say it's actually a surprising question because for me, Re, uh, migration and particularly the migrant workers, be they the international migration or the domestic, um, usually involve some of the most uh, vulnerable, exposed, and marginalized group of people working in the food system. So um, I would have loved to talk to the person who asked the question because for me, I don't see them as a solution, but uh, rather as one of the most impacted victims of the, 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 the pandemic at the, at the, in the sense that when mobility was reduced, when uh, cash was uh, reduced, they are the ones that usually were the first to be uh, basically uh, turned down. And we saw the huge drop in the remittance, uh, which also, uh, means that not simply domestically, but internationally, those people are amongst, again, the groups that will, you know, uh, 
rapidly be the ones that uh, will, will pay the cost. So um, I, I, I don't see a role played by migration in sorting out and certainly not in strengthening the resilience of the system, but I will certainly see a very important role for us to better understand how particular type of shock affect particular groups of excluded politically or economically excluded or more marginalized group and making the or able to make the distinction between the type of shock and the groups of people that are affected the most will be i think a very very first important in uh, those resilience analysis that we really need to start doing for the midstream people so not simply again not simply the farmers but all the different actors that are in the middle so once again in, in one sentence uh, for me migration rhyme more with uh, exclusion than with solution when it comes to pandemic. Over to you. Interesting. Thank you, Chris. Uh, please let me just remind you that we still have a few minutes of this very interesting discussion. So please feel free to submit additional questions via the different platforms on which we're streaming our event from. And that includes the eFree website, but also Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. So I would now actually like to go back to Namokolo with a question from Bilei Terefe from Ethiopia. Can you talk a little bit about the COVID-19 response uh, policies or programs in Ethiopia and Africa in general, the ones that were successful? Okay, um, thank you. I think one of the um, big policy uh, directions that we seem to miss is that um, somewhere around April uh, 2020, the ministers of agriculture through the African Union met and made a declaration to facilitate movement of food across borders. As the borders were closing, um, the tracking of food across borders actually became uh, quite a challenge. Uh, there are, for example, within the Sadiq region, there were problems that surfaced and governments were negotiating and actually managing to move uh, things across. So I think there are some lessons that we can learn there. Botswana, I think, successfully managed to adapt its school feeding program to allow the food to actually be given to children uh, during the pandemic. So that's an example that could be looked at. Um, Ethiopia has done some work in terms uh, through the government response plan of the Ministry of Agriculture. They worked on uh, protecting uh, input supplies, specifically fertilizer, because the pandemic hit uh, when, when it was getting worse in Ethiopia, it was just before the growing season. So the worries were inputs for the next um, harvest. So, so that seems to have been, um, so far what I hear is it was uh, successful. Um, and so, so there's, there's pockets of information that really needs to be followed up. I hesitate as a researcher to say, yes, was successful. But what I can say is that there's positive anecdotal information that we are getting that then needs to be followed up. Uh, with proper data collection to see how useful uh, those mitigation measures are. There's work uh, under the COVID response plan for Ethiopia at the moment that is actually going to look into that. Thank you. 
Thank you, Namakolo. We have about 10 more minutes for this discussion, so we can perhaps take two or three more questions uh, before starting to wrap up. So I would like now to pass to Sophia, and there was a question from Diana McLean from Canada. Given the variable government responses to the crisis, how can capacities for leadership analysis and response be improved? A very important question. Please, Sophia. Thank you for the question. Um, a few, a few thoughts that come to me. One, um, one is an innovation that Canada just announced, which is this National Food Policy Advisory Council and a new departure to work across different government, minist government ministries and to work with some, I would say, maybe not new constituencies, but constituencies that have traditionally dealt with one ministry and its food policy rather than the collective. So this, um, this is all building on the system thinking that, that, that Chris has used in the paper and that a lot of um, both scholars and policy analysts are bringing in. So hearing from a diversity of voices, which is going to Tom's point about testing your assumptions, you, you, you know, if you're not even looking for something, you're not likely to find it. And one of the ways to, to check that is to make sure that you're not just talking to the same people that you always talk to. And I think for a lot of agriculture, um, the, the, the assumed constituencies uh, miss a lot of important players. And as I say, that's part of Tom's point. That's part of the point we would make a civil society in terms of which scale of farming is counted. Um, but it also goes to these questions of biodiversity, our climate change policy, our management of water systems. Um, I, I think if we want to see different leadership, then we need to be asking some different people questions. Um, about, about what food systems we have to have in place and what they need to be supported. And then another thing linked to that is in terms of what we count. And I think, you know, speaking as a feminist, it was both gratifying that the word gender was one of the first words out of people's mouths when COVID-19 um, measures were put down, but we still didn't know much. We still don't count very much. And if you want to know something about women, um, especially in the global South, they have to head a household. <laughs> Basically, that's what we can say. Women headed households and not. And of course, it's great that we have that. It's also shocking that we don't know more and, and have better data. And that's an issue that's been on the horizon since I was in school. And that was a long time ago. So, so this, this need maybe to be, of course, policy analysis and the kinds of results that are surveyed in a paper like this are going to go back in time. They have to. That's what research and scholarship does. But it, it's been more than 30 years, and we still have very little policy to analyze to understand the effects on women, just as an example. So if we want um, innovation and leadership, we need to be counting different things and counting them better. Um, the last thing I'll say is I think this idea of ripple effects that was raised in the paper is really important in that context. So this, one of the things that we also see is that lots of things are studied in isolation. And sometimes one variable is measured against another, but it's very difficult for us still. And we're still learning how to think about multiple variables and, and how to understand trade-offs across the system. Modeling does that in economics and, and in um, ecology, but, but we don't do it very well yet. And we don't have very good, for example, ecological economic models. You know, we're, we're still learning how to bring our different assumptions together. Thank you, Sophia. There are quite a few questions for Tom. I think people really are interested in learning more about the questions that are related to logistics, to delivery, to pivoting in different uh, 
fractions of the value chains as we have seen in this uh, emergency. So Tom, actually the question from Alan Debro from IFRI is about the role of venture capital in the delivery that you were talking about. If it's not profit, profitable, it will get pivoted again, but it's investors. And if I may go ahead and ask already a second question also to you, Tom, from Ed, it's about preparedness dimension. So how do we achieve efficient logistics? Should we be investing more in preparedness instead of waiting until the shocks arrive? So I know it's, it's a handful, but if you could speak a bit about both the venture capital and preparedness to improve logistics to avoid um, the shocks are felt stronger than necessary, that would be appreciated. Thanks a lot. These are great questions. One thing that really strikes me is, you know, going to Alan's point, is that the thing that's here to stay is delivery. E-commerce and delivery are siblings. And so it's the function that will continue to rise and rise and rise. Now, who sells the service? And basically, at this point, you're going from a situation where the firms that are pivoting to wanting to deliver don't necessarily have the initial capacity. Small and medium enterprise want to deliver, but they don't have the capacity. They reach out. Immediately, a business opportunity arises at a large scale. Delivery intermediaries like Instacart and the Swiggy and the versions I talked about around the world emerge. And as they emerge, they draw money from around the planet to them. Okay, so it's true that the, the equity firms, the venture capital, et cetera, run to where the action is. Uh, at the same time, the firms themselves are starting to form more and more capacity to do their own logistics. So for a while, the delivery intermediaries will be a segment that will rise and rise and rise, especially as the small and medium enterprises need them, okay, and don't have their own capacity. And then, of course, there'll be churning and merging mergers and acquisitions and concentration in that sector as with all. The key thing though is the function will continue to expand. Second thing, this beautiful question about what to do about logistics and preparedness. You know, one thing I wanted to say, because the Ethiopians government in uh, 10 years in the 2000s did something fantastic where they really invested in highways this is Bart Minton's story. This is a fantastic story. They really invested in highways, highways, fixed them up, fixed them up, wholesale markets, fixed them up, fixed them up. What happened is that hundreds or thousands of small trucking enterprises made massive private investments of their own money into doubling, tripling, quadrupling the number of trucks they had. They doubled the average size of the truck. And even though the government cut the fuel subsidy 60% during that decade, the transport costs dropped 50%. Why? It wasn't a preparedness program of the donors and the da 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 da, da. It was a program of the private SMEs that went wild investing when the opportunity opened up. They got the bones and the blood right. The bones were the highways and the wholesale markets. And then the blood rushed in. Okay, and the investments were made. If you want preparedness, don't set up a this and a that uh, with the donors and the governments building it. The, people say there's missing middle. This is absurd. We found all around the world 
massive markets for whole, uh, for warehouses, third-party logistics warehouses, trucking services. All this stuff exists. It's invisible to the debate. People said, well, we need to, to put it together. We need a 10-step program to put this stuff in place. No, it's in place. It needs to be freed. Electricity needs to flow to it. Roads need to be improved. Bribes need to be withdrawn. Okay, the bones and the blood, that's preparedness. And then you'll see the private sector and the small and medium enterprises rushing forward to do what they were doing before COVID where the conditions were right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. Excellent points and very strongly made on the importance of this blood and bones structures to be in place to make sure that markets continue to function and people get, get food and, and livelihoods. So actually, we only have a couple of minutes left. I would like to ask one last question to Chris. And this is going back to inclusion and Sarah Olembo from Food Security. Um, she works on food security and sovereignty as a policy expert from Nairobi. She's asking about lessons learned and COVID coping strategies specifically for, from perspective of vulnerable groups and, and specifically slum areas, because we already talked about government policies and social protection, but some people simply do not have access to those. So how do people survive when they do not have social protection um, measures that, that are accessible to them? And related to that, roads in Lobo, a program CBI officer at UNHCR at the UN Refugee Agency is also asking about the, the communities in Africa um, that have been affected and what is the importance, what should have been in place in terms of financial and economic inclusion to reach these more vulnerable communities. Chris? Thanks, thanks for the question. This is, this is actually, a, I think, one of the most central questions that we're going to have to sit down and really think uh, you know, much more clearly about. Uh, I don't have the answer uh, at the present time on how those uh, communities, groups, socioeconomic groups that were already living on the margin of the system have cope. Um, because frankly speaking, they are invisible. They are invisible to the stats. Therefore, we don't have the data. And because we couldn't go in the field and actually observed how those people, what sort of responses they put in place uh, to try to, you know, basically uh, make the two uh, ends meet. I don't have those uh, very nuanced, detailed analysis that would allow us to understand the strategy that they put in place. We can only imagine, or hopefully next year, go back and actually speak to them. But this is a key issue because remember, those are basically probably 50 to 70% of the food system actors are those informal actors that are not visible, that are not part of the official statistical system. So um, I don't have the precise knowledge that would allow us to actually answer that question. I can only reiterate what other people have said, which is that middle, that missing middle which a lot of international research organizations that have focused so far for decades and decades on just the farmers or in some cases the, the consumers uh, will have to re, you know, refocus part of their research with those, uh, again, resilience principle in mind so that we can better understand the source of vulnerability, we can better, better document the type of 
responses that those people put in place to be able to support the good responses, the adaptive capacities that they have, and help them prevent on you know engaging in those negative coping strategy that uh, sometimes they don't have choice but have to adapt. Uh, so it is a lot, a lot that we still have to learn about this COVID, and hopefully in 2021, with more of the uh, publication, we will start uh, unpacking a bit more uh, those nuances, uh, which have not necessarily been documented in the first 12 months because we were not allowed to go in the field. Over to you. Thank you, Chris. I can see we have uh, just about five minutes left, so I would actually like to pass to John McDermott, Director of the CGR Research Program on Agriculture for Nutrition and Health, A4NH, and co-lead of the CGR COVID-19 Hub. I would like to thank our panelists, and uh, please don't let go yet. We are still have a few minutes to go. But over to you, John, to provide us some, with some reflections or summaries or closing remarks, as you may wish. Thank you, Katya, and it's been a pleasure to watch this, this wonderful webinar. It's been, it's been a really a great conversation. Um, and I'm, I'm happy on behalf of the co-organizers of this. As Katya said, I'm the co-chair of the CGR COVID Hub, which is hosted in the Agriculture for Nutrition and Health Program. On the IFPRI side, I'm one of the co-conveners of the IFPRI COVID blogs and events. So I'm happy to kind of conclude on both, both the hosts. First, I'd like to thank Chris and his team um, and all the people who provided the research papers and discussion papers that were included in their analysis. It's a tough time to do research. It's urgently needed. And so it's great that you were able to pull this together. This isn't the final document, but it's a step in a process. And I really thank you, Chris, for pulling this together quickly and engaging us in this way. That's been great. I'd also like to thank the panel who provided a very rich picture um, to add to the report. Um, Tom, I think you and, and Sophia and Namakulo added some brain and maybe a little bit of small muscle control to the bones and the blood that were there. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, and, uh, and then I'd like to thank Katya. You've done a great job of moderating and it's a pleasure to, to work on the COVID hub with you. And, and so uh, it's, I'd like to thank you. Um, just thinking about a few summary points. Um, and you, I think you've heard them. The food system didn't collapse, but there was a lot of variation that we can learn from. And I think that's important. And you heard a lot of nuance and discussion about that. So that's great. The other thing, and if I can use a, being a health person, use a bit of a health analogy is that these kind of acute crises are gonna be more common and we better get prepared for them. And, um, but they tend to exacerbate chronic underlying conditions that we've ignored at our peril over time. Um, and you heard about inequities being one of them. Um, there, are, there are others, um, including a kind of a fundamental understanding of the food system. Um, so, so I think that's, that's important. What are the kind of next steps moving forward? Well, um, one thing that I th think was, was nice and I like the title People's Food Security is to really look at the vulnerabilities and the functions of the actors in the food system and how that, and that came out, I think, nicely in the discussion. There's lots of actors from different perspectives um, that are all playing a function now, and we, and we really need to drill down on that. 
The second thing that I really liked was kind of what's come out of resilience, not as a separate topic, but as something we need to integrate into our food systems thinking and related to the, the high level outcomes of health, sustainability and, and inclusion that we want from food systems. So bringing resilience in, integrating it into the conversation is very important. I'd just like to close off by kind of inviting the people on the webinar and people who will be watching it later to engage with us. Uh, so we're going to be put, we've put out this, there'll be subsequent kind of discussions, webinars from the COVID hub. Um, and uh, we'd really like you to, if you've got comments or projects or things that are of interest, you can share them with us and we can, we can build on what we've done so far. Um, there'll be future webinars related to the COVID hub. Um, on the IFPRI side, um, last year's global food policy report was on food system transformation. <laughs> and I'm just staggered by how much change there's been obviously this year and all these things that have happened. And uh, this year's global food policy report will be launched on April 13th. Um, and it'll look at COVID-19 and its effects on food system transformation. And some of these issues will come up. Uh, from different perspectives. Finally, I'd like to thank Katarla and her team behind the IFPRI platform for these events. Um, we only did the first one. This platform is another COVID innovation. It started with the Global Food Policy Report last April and has carried on. And it's been invaluable for a lot of the work that I've been involved in, in, in getting these discussions going um, communicating, et cetera. So Katarla, you're, you and your team are highly appreciated um, by all of us, I think. So let me close there. Um, it's been a wonderful webinar and uh, we look forward to engaging you in future. Thank you. Thank you very much. I just have also one last announcement to make. Well, first of all, also joining John in thanking Chris, the panelists, the audience, and the wonderful IFPRI team that may happen. And also just to invite you to join the next IFPRI seminar on Friday, March 12th at 9.30 Eastern Standard Time for a very special event called the 2021 United Nations Food Systems Summit, How to Incentivize Food Loss and Waste Reduction. And we will feature keynote addresses by Agnes Kalibata, the UN Secretary General Special Envoy to the 2021 Food Systems Summit, and Rasmus Brent, the Minister of Food, Agriculture and Fisheries of Denmark. So please do join us and thanks a lot for wonderful questions, for your attention and have a great day.